Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christiania Internet Radio. Today is Friday, December 11th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Tonight we will present the last portion of our presentation of Paul's Epistle to the Ephesians. This is part eight, and it's subtitled, The Full Armor of Yahweh, because what else could you subtitle a discussion of Ephesians chapter six? In the later parts of chapter five of this Epistle to the Ephesians, we saw Paul of Tarsus admonishing Christians to be subject to one another, men to be subject to Christ, and women to be subject to their husbands. So much for feminism. This is the fabric of Christian society. No Christian society, no society at all, can succeed unless it is adorned with this fabric. The Christian household, which is the basic component of Christian society, is a menage a trois, or a household of three. God, a husband subject to God, and a wife subject to her husband. This is the natural order of the creation of Yahweh, which is found in Genesis chapter 2. It is the way we are made. And when we try to change this model, we end up with the very predicament which we face today. Broken homes, single mothers, disgruntled absentee fathers, and children without any real foundation or guidance in society who are instead being trained by godless employees of the state in our corrupted public schools. In addition to these broken families, we have communities, not of neighbors, but of near-dwellers, who compete with and step on one another rather than building up and helping one another. They are instead alienated from one another. Today, without an anchor in Christ and raised by state schools, for several generations we as a society have been tossed as waves and carried about in every wind of teaching by the trickery of men, as Paul had warned in Ephesians chapter 4, in villainy for the sake of the systematizing of deception. Now we see the results of our alienation as our formerly Christian nations are overrun with pestilence of biblical proportions. Here in this last chapter of this epistle to the Ephesians, Paul continues explaining to them how they should be Christians illustrating the proper function of a Christian household and community. And he says, children, you must obey your parents in authority, for this is just. And as we have explained in our earlier chapters of this epistle to the Ephesians, the word curious frequently appears where Paul did not use it as a noun referring to the Lord as it is most often translated in the King James Version. While the word kurios is often used as a noun, it is also an adjective meaning having power or authority over. 
Therefore, here the phrase encurio is not a substantive, and it is translated as in authority here. If it was not our endeavor to adhere to a literal, concordant method of translation, perhaps we may write, children, you must obey your parents who uphold authority, for this is just. Paul then cites the appropriate commandment, honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with the promise that it would be well with you and that you may be a long time upon the earth. This commandment is the first commandment with a promise. It is found in Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. Honor thy father and thy mother for thy days, or that thy days may be long upon the land which Yahweh thy God gives thee. It is also found in Deuteronomy 5.16, which refers back to this commandment recorded in Exodus. In Matthew chapter 15, Christ is recorded as having said, For God commanded, saying, Honor thy father and mother, and he that curses father or mother, let him die the death. And Paul continues by admonishing the fathers. And fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but raise them in education and admonition of authority. This does not conflict with the words of Solomon in Proverbs chapter 13. He that spares the rod hates his son, but he that loves him chastens him betimes, or at times in modern English. Here, here the word kuriu, the genitive form of kurius, is of authority. Raise them in education and admonition of authority, where the King James Version, of course, has of the Lord. However, as Paul has already outlined in chapter 5 of this epistle, the authority of which he speaks is the line of subjection from Christ down through the father and the mother. There, Paul had admonished his readers to subject yourselves to one another in fear of Christ, wives to their own husband as if to the Lord, because the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the assembly. He is the deliverer of the body. But as the assembly is subject to Christ, in that manner also wives in everything to the husbands. Now come the children, who must in turn subject themselves to their parents. Ostensibly, according to Scripture, they should remain so until they are married. As it says in Genesis chapter 2, that a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. From Sirach chapter 7, we read, Hast thou children, instruct them, and bow down their neck from their youth. Evidently, that means that fathers must teach their children to be subject to Yahweh their God from their youth, to revere and respect authority from their youth. Mothers have an important role in the household and naturally conduct the menial education of their children. But here we see that fathers are ultimately responsible for seeing 
that children come to respect the authority of God. Now that parents have abdicated this responsibility to the state, the state has become the God of their children, and children no longer respect their parents. As it says in Proverbs chapter 22, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Train up a child in the state system with the government as their God. And it's awfully hard when they're old to get people to depart from that. Bond man. Paul now turns his attention to another class commonly found in many ancient households, which are the servants. Bondmen obey fleshly masters with fear and trembling, in the simplicity of your heart, as with Christ. And here the word for masters is also the Greek word kurios, the plural form of the Greek word doulos, which is kindly translated here as bondmen, and for which the King James Version has servants, refers to slaves. Originally, according to Liddell and Scott, the term was used to refer to someone who was born as a slave, as opposed to someone who was made a slave through some circumstance of life. The word doulis was often used by Christ himself in the gospel, and therefore, to be a slave is a factual state of life recognized by God himself. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul had written, Let as many servants, douloi, doulis, the slave, one who is born a slave, let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. Slavery was a fact of life in the ancient world. It was not necessarily demeaning to be a slave, and often it was a necessity as a matter of survival. There were Roman slaves who themselves had owned property, including other slaves, and Christianity does not despise the state of slavery as it had then existed. Rather, Christian slaveholders were only admonished to treat their slaves well, as we read further on. In Paul's statement, in that same place in 1 Timothy, and they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service. In other words, if you're a slave who's a Christian with a master who's believing, you should all the more want to work for him, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. Teach these things and exhort. Using these same Greek terms, Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 4, Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The apostle Peter would have agreed with the, with the advice of Paul here, where he wrote in chapter 2 of his first epistle, Servants, Subject yourselves with all fear to the masters, not only to the good and reasonable, but also to the crooked. We will not discuss them here. 
but the 19th century objections to slavery made by Protestant so-called ministers in the United States, most of them from the North, were all contrived and were absolutely contrary to Scripture. Those so-called ministers were purveyors of an evil anti-Christian agenda that had to be said in the light of a discussion of slavery in Scripture. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul had written saying, Servants or slaves, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God, from the King James Version. And he also makes that same admonishment addressing servants or slaves here in Ephesians. Not with lip service as men pleasers, but as bondmen of Christ, doing the will of Yahweh from the soul, with good will, doing service as if to the prince and not to man, knowing that whatever good each may have done, this he will recover for himself as appropriate whether bondman or free. And like the word kurios is treated in the preceding verses, here the phrase parakuriu, it's not a noun. It's rendered with the words as appropriate. As Liddell and Scott explained, that the word was used to describe something which is valid or ordained or appointed or proper or even something real, actual, or current. All those meanings are valid meanings of the adjective curious. The word for lip service here is literally eye service. In Greek, as we see it in the King James Version of Colossians chapter 3, which we just quoted, where our departure from the literal fully suits the intended meaning of the idiom. The term men-pleasers is a literal translation. We may have written ass-kissers. We were almost tempted to do that when we translated this epistle 14 years ago. And that would have achieved an accurate expression of the idiom according to our modern usage. But we chose to avoid introducing such vulgarity to the text. Next, Paul addresses the slave owners and masters, these same things you must do towards them, meaning towards their slaves, giving up threat of punishment, knowing also that the master of them and of you is in the heavens, and there is no respect of the stature of persons before him. That same word, kurios, appears here both of fleshly masters and of Christ. The Greek word, prosopolampsia, is the respect of the stature of persons, where status, the status of persons, may also have been sufficient. The meaning of the word is best illustrated by James, where he uses it, in chapter 2 of his epistle, where he chastises those who would favor the rich for their wealth and despise the poor for their poverty. 
The word has nothing to do with race or with the fact that the covenants of God are with only one particular race. And the use of the word certainly does not make void the covenants of God. The word is status, the status of persons, and must be understood in a context within the covenants of God. So fleshly masters should fear God, and for that reason they should treat their slaves well. But if we examine the model of slavery in ancient Rome, and look at our society today and the manner in which we function, the closest comparison we have to ancient slavery is modern corporate employment. Therefore, the advice Paul gives to masters and to slaves best fits those today who are called employers and employees. However, Roman taxation was probably never so oppressive. Evidently, Roman slaves didn't pay taxes. Prophesying the punishment of the ancient people of Judah, Yahweh said in Jeremiah chapter 15, And it shall come to pass, if they say unto thee, Whither shall we go forth? Then thou shalt tell them, Thus saith Yahweh, Such as are for death to death, and such as are for the sword to the sword, and such as are for the famine to the famine and such as are for the captivity to the captivity to be slaves, even if their nation was enslaved by another nation, as they were in Egypt. Later, in Revelation chapter 13, we see a similar warning of such predestination, where we read in verse 10 that if one is for captivity, into captivity goes. And if one is to be slain by the sword, he is to be slain by the sword. Thus is the patience and the faith of the saints. With a side note, that the King James and other modern versions badly translate that passage. Slavery was a fact of life. If one is for captivity, into captivity he goes. And today it still exists, even though it is called by other names and packaged in more appealing ways. Slavery, too, when the children of Israel fall into it, is a punishment from God for their disobedience on a national level as well as a personal level. Many good men are enslaved to public corporations today. Or in other ways, they're good men, but we suffer on a national level. Jeremiah chapter 15 and Revelation chapter 13 reveal that captivity, which is slavery, is also a state of punishment ordained by God. One proof of our slavery today is that we cannot conduct the course of our lives without paying debt usury whether it be our own, or that of our neighbors, or that of our governments. When Paul wrote to Philemon, he was writing to a slave owner on behalf of a captured runaway slave named 
Onesimus. Philemon was the slave owner of Onesimus, the slave. Paul did not command that Philemon release Onesimus. He refrained from that. Rather, he requested that Philemon voluntarily release Onesimus from servitude so that he may be of service to the assemblies of Christ. whereby Onesimus would be more profitable to them all. Therefore, while Paul had made the request for the freedom of Onesimus, he never made a demand for his freedom. The choice was left to his owner, Philemon. That reflects the Christian respect of the rights of property, even when that property happens to be another person that the holder of the property has a choice to dispose of it as he sees fit. The um, elderly couple in Acts chapter 5 who had held back part of the sale of their estate and given only a portion of the money to the apostles and were therefore struck dead were struck dead for another reason. They were struck dead because they promised the estate and because joining the community of the apostles, they were expected to give up the entire estate. So they were cheating God. So that's another reason. Christians have property rights. And even Christ respected them. Even though punishment and judgment are a different story. So there was no legitimate anti-slavery position in Christianity, whereby Christians may be deprive other men of their lawfully obtained property. Paul had written in the same manner in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, each in a calling in which he has been called, in this he must abide. A bondman have you been called? It must not a concern to you. But then, if you have the ability to become free, rather, you use it. So if a slave has the ability to purchase his freedom, or if he may become free at the will of his master by some other means, he is encouraged to use that ability. Otherwise, the Christian must seek to serve Christ regardless of his status in life. Seeking to serve Christ, one's status in life should not really matter. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. For what remains, and the majority text interpolates the words, my brethren here, for what remains, be empowered in the prince and in the might of his strength. And the words empowered, might, and strength here are from three different Greek words whose roots, dunamis, kratos, and Iscus have virtually identical meanings. They are all synonyms. The words for what remains indicates that Paul is speaking in conclusion to his epistle. The passage which follows is commonly identified by Paul's analogy of the elements of the faith 
to the full armor of God. As we have the Old Testament today, the paragraph which follows seems to have been inspired from Isaiah 59:17. There, in a prophetic analogy, Yahweh responds to the complete lack of justice in the land. And we read, and we'll read from verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 59, For our transgressions are multiplied before thee, and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us, and as for our iniquities, we know them. In transgressing and lying against Yahweh, and departing away from our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart words of falsehood, and judgment is turned away backward and justice stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yeah, truth fails, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. And Yahweh saw it, and it displeased him that there was no judgment. And he saw that there was no man, and wondered, that there was no intercessor. Therefore, his arm brought salvation unto him, and his righteousness, it sustained him. For he put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation upon his head. And he put on the garments of vengeance for clothing, and was clad with zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, Accordingly, he will repay. Fury to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies. To the islands, he will pay recompense. The similarity of the allegory here in Ephesians with that of Isaiah 59:17 is striking. However, with all certainty, the true inspiration for this passage of Ephesians is found in chapter 5 of the apocryphal wisdom of Solomon. The allegorical similarities in the language which the passage from Isaiah also shares are even more striking here in the wisdom of Solomon. Additionally, the word for full armor, the full armor of Yahweh, panoplia, appears only 13 times in all Greek scripture, both canonical and apocryphal, three times in the New Testament, I believe, and 10 times in the Septuagint twice in this passage of Ephesians. But in this context, the word is found both in Ephesians 6.11 and 6.13, and in the Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 5, verse 17. And these are the only passages of Scripture which have the word panoplia in this context. The other ten occurrences have it in a quite different context. Here we shall read the last ten verses of chapter 5 of the Wisdom of Solomon. For the hope of the ungodly is like dust that is blown away with the wind 
like a thin froth that is driven away with the storm, like as the smoke which is dispersed here and there with a tempest and passes away as the remembrance of a guest that tarries but a day. But the righteous live forevermore. Their reward also is with the Lord, and the care of them is with the Most High. Therefore shall they receive a glorious kingdom and a beautiful crown from the Lord's hand. For with his right hand he shall cover them, and with his arm he shall protect them. He shall take to him his jealousy for a complete armor, or a whole armor, the same word panoplia, which we see here on two occasions in Ephesians chapter 6, and make the creature his revenge for the, his weapon, I'm sorry, and make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. And that verse, that last phrase, we will discuss at length further on this evening. He shall put on righteousness as a breastplate and true judgment instead of a helmet or in place of a helmet. He shall take holiness for an invincible shield. Holiness to the children of Israel would mean set-apartness. His severe wrath shall he sharpen for a sword, and the world shall fight with him against the unwise. Then shall the right-aiming thunderbolts go abroad, and from the clouds, as from a well-drawn bow, shall they fly to the mark, and hailstones full of wrath shall be cast out. As out of a stone bow, and the water of the sea shall rage against them, and the flood shall cruelly drown them. Yeah, a mighty wind shall stand up against them, and like a storm shall blow them away, the iniquity shall lay waste the whole earth, and ill-dealing shall overthrow the thrones of the mighty. These verses from Solomon sound like the inspiration for the Greek epic poetry and the Homeric hymns for the pagan gods. In a similar manner, Paul had mentioned the armor of light in Romans chapter 13 and the armor of righteousness in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. However, note where Solomon mentioned that Yahweh shall make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. And by creature, we must understand that the enemies of God are not a part of the creation of Scripture. That word creature is the same word as creation, ketesis. This same revenge is prophesied in Obadiah, verses 15 to 18, in Micah 4.13, in Revelation, chapter 18, verse 6, as well as being mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians, chapter 10, where he tells them to be ready to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. The word for creature and creation in that passage of the Wisdom of Solomon, as well as Romans 8.22 and Romans 8.39, is Ketesis. 
the same word, often translated in the King James Version as creation and sometimes as creature. Solomon said that Yahweh would make the creation, the creature, the ketesis, his weapon for the revenge of his enemies. In the same manner that Paul had used that same word ketesis in Romans chapter 8, of the singular creation of the Adamic race. In Romans chapter 8, Paul at first said that the whole creation, ketesis, groaneth, and travaileth together in pain until now. And then, at the end of Romans chapter 8, he said that neither life nor death, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor death, nor any other creature, ketesis, same word that we see here in Solomon, shall be able to separate us from the love of God. So by ketesis, creation or creature in Romans 8, Paul meant only the single creation of the Adamic man as opposed to other things which Yahweh God had created. Angels, heights, death, principalities, powers, whatever. We can suppose that the racial message found in the wisdom of Solomon, which helps to clarify the meaning of ketesis as it was used by Paul, and in turn the way it was used by Paul helps to clarify Solomon, is perhaps at least one reason why the wisdom of Solomon is not found in our Bibles today. This passage from Solomon is indeed the inspiration for Paul's discourse here, and it just as well also demonstrates to us that the wisdom of Solomon, which in many ways may be shown to have been written by the same author as the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, should indeed be alongside those other books in our scriptures, because from it, Paul himself had drawn his inspiration. He counted it as scripture. Put on, Ephesians 6.11, put on the full armor of Yahweh for you to be able to stand against the methods of the false accuser. The word for methods is from the Greek root word of our English word method, methodia. At Ephesians 4.14, we rendered the same word as systematization in the phrase, systematization of deception. The false accuser here is ho diabolus, or the devil in the King James Version. The reference is not to some spiritual demon, but to particular persons, any one of whom may fulfill the role. As the Apostle Peter also warned, to be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. And Paul continues, because for us, the struggle is not against flesh and blood, or blood and flesh, I'm sorry, but against realms, against authorities, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness, among the heavenly places. 
There are those who insist that the flesh is the devil. We cannot ever accept that insistence. Each Adamic man has a challenge to overcome concerning the flesh. There is no doubt. Paul describes that at length in Romans chapters 7 and 8. But that conflict between the spiritual and the fleshly is not the struggle of which Paul speaks here. Neither is it the primary struggle of the Adamic man. The primary struggle of the Adamic man is Genesis 3.15. The flesh is not the devil. In fact, Yahweh God created man in the flesh and said that it was good. Rather, here Paul tells these Ephesian Christians that the struggle is not against the flesh, because for us the struggle is not against blood and flesh. Here Paul makes a direct correlation between the devil or false accuser and the rulers of the order of this darkness. Of course, this may be correlated to that same devil of Luke chapter 4, where we read, and the devil, taking him up to a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will or wish, I give it. So the Christian struggle is against these devils, these rulers of the order of this darkness and the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. Paul had written of these heavenly places in Ephesians chapter 3. Where, concerning the preaching of the gospel to the nations, he had written in verse 10, in order that the exceedingly intricate wisdom of Yahweh would now become known to the realms and to the authorities in heavenly places through the assembly. So it has to be here on earth. It can't be up in the sky. In accordance with the purpose of the ages, which he has done in Yahshua Christ, our Prince. Commenting several weeks ago, Commenting on that statement, we discussed this revelation of the gospel to the authorities in the heavenly places, and we said the heavenly places that Paul speaks of here are the seats of government and the institutions of nations. And we said that today, colleges and universities pretend to teach Christians. However, it should be the other way around. At one time, Christianity prevailed in Europe, and it was the other way around. Now, for several centuries, Judaism has dominated European thought, and we are led to worship the gods of secularism. But soon, it will be the other way around once again. Christians should be teaching colleges and universities. The common people of the assemblies of Yahweh God are the revealers of truth and not the Jews or the professional priesthoods who are the merchants of Babylon. This is the struggle of which Paul speaks here. 
the struggle for the control of society, which Christians faced at his time, to convert society from paganism and the powers of darkness to light in Yahshua Christ. Christ had told his adversaries, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 22, that when I was daily with you in the temple, you stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the, and the power of darkness. So it is clear that the princes of this world are the rulers of the order of this darkness or the cosmos of this darkness, or the society of this darkness, if you will, of which Paul speaks here. Because Christ had called those same adversaries the prince of this world, speaking collectively, as Paul had later written of the wisdom spoken by Christians, which none of the princes of this world knew. For had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. A couple of years before writing this epistle from Rome, and shortly before his arrest in Jerusalem, Paul of Tarsus met the elders of the Christian assemblies of Ephesus as he stopped over in Miletus as he was en route to Judea. There, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20, Paul had told the Ephesians that he would not see them again face to face. And he warned them that men would attempt to corrupt them, saying, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves, shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. So we see two types of men who would attempt to lead astray the flocks of Christ, those from without and those from within. Likewise, the Apostle Peter says in chapter 2 of his second epistle, now, there were also false prophets among the people, as even among you there shall be false teachers who shall introduce destructive systems of philosophy, or more literally, destructive heresies, even denying the master who has bought them, bringing upon themselves quick destruction, and many shall follow in their licentiousness, because of whom the way of truth shall be blasphemed and with greediness they shall make profit from you with fictitious words. For whom, from of old, their judgment is not idle, and their destruction does not sleep. The Apostle Jude described the same phenomenon, only a little differently, where he had written, Beloved, making all haste to write to you concerning our common salvation, I had necessity to write to you encouraging you to contend once for all, for the faith having been delivered to the saints. For some men had stolen in, those of old, having been written about before time for this judgment, godless men, substituting the favor of our God for licentiousness and denying our only master and prince, Yahshua Christ.
So we see in Jude men who were described as those of old, who had been written about before time, and he later associates them with the way of Cain, the error of Balaam, which was without a doubt an incident of the going after of strange flesh, which he attributes to them, by which he calls them clouds without water, twice dead and not having the spirit. Peter also described the false prophets among the people as having been condemned from of old, following the way of Balaam, and as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. So we see those grievous wolves which Paul warned would enter in among you, not sparing the flock, are described by Jude as men who have stolen in, meaning that they did not belong in the assemblies of Yahweh or of Christ in the first place. There are men who seek their own gain, which Paul describes to the Ephesians where he says, of your own selves shall men arise, and where Peter says of these false prophets that many shall follow them. And then there are others who are outside, and they infiltrate in order to corrupt the assemblies, which Paul describes as grievous wolves entering in among you, which Jude says have stolen in, and which Peter says are as natural brute beasts made to be taken and destroyed. We bring, all of this, we bring all of this to light in this context in order to show that Christians have a collective adversary called the devil or the false accuser and the princes of this world, which in Paul's time they had been challenged to resist. These are the purveyors of Peter's damnable heresies, for which Jude had necessity to write to you, encouraging you to contend once for all for the faith having been delivered to the saints. So we see the faith was in danger in the first century. So Jude had necessity to write in order to explain the same struggle about which Paul had written to the Ephesians here. These men, Grievous wolves were not candidates to conversion to the truth of Christ, but rather they were infiltrators from outside who were already condemned of old by God, as Christ himself had told them in John chapter 10. But you believe me not, because you are not my sheep, as I said unto you. Speaking of one of those heavenly places of power and authority, namely the temple in Jerusalem, Paul had written concerning those same men whom Christ had called not my sheep in his second epistle to the Ephesians, where he said that you should not be deceived by anyone in any way, because if apostasy, he's speaking, in the past tense, had not come first. And the man of lawlessness, in the past tense, then revealed the son of destruction, he who, in the present tense, he who is opposing and exalting himself above everything said to be a god or an object of worship. So, in the present tense, he is seated in the temple of Yahweh, 
representing himself, that he is a god in the present tense. Paul then said, for the mystery of lawlessness is already operating, he prevailing only presently until he should be taken out of the way. And then will the lawless be revealed, whom Prince Joshua will destroy with the breath of his mouth and abolish at the manifestation of his presence, whose presence is in accordance with the operation of Satan or the adversary, in all power and signs and wonders of falsehood, and in every trick of unrighteousness in those who are perishing, the systematizing of deception, because they accepted not the love of the truth for them to be preserved. Paul had written these things of the Edomite Jews who had control of the temple in Jerusalem as he wrote, since he was writing in the present tense and not of the future. These are the same Edomite Jews whom Christ had called the children of the devil in John chapter 8, and not my sheep in John chapter 10. So Paul admonishes these Ephesians here to put on the full armor of Yahweh for you to be able to stand against the methods of the devil. These same devils, which are those eternal enemies of God who have infiltrated and corrupted all earthly governments and institutions since the dawn of man. In Judea, in Paul's time, they were manifested as the Edomite Jews. However, they have gone by many other names at diverse times. Then Paul says, because for us, the struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against realms, against authorities, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. And this describes the very workings of those same people, not only up to Paul's time, but up to our own time today, as they still operate in that same fashion as the devil had rather confidently said to Christ, speaking of all the kingdoms of the world, all this power will I give thee and the glory of them, for that it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Paul also understood, as he was about to defend his Christian faith before the emperor Nero in Rome, that he faced this same dilemma in the court of the emperor. So towards the end of this epistle, in the same regard, Paul asks for the prayers of his readers, that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth with free spokenness to make known the mystery of the good message, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in them I may speak freely as it is necessary for me to speak. Then Paul repeats himself again in verse 13, further stressing the importance of what he had just written. Because of this, take up the full armor of Yahweh in order that 
you may be able to make a stand in the evil day, even to stand, all things being accomplished. As Christ himself had insisted in the gospel, Paul had always taught that the day of the return of Christ and the day of the judgment and the wrath of Yahweh were forthcoming immediately. Many critics of Christianity claim that the apostles are at fault for teaching that the return of Christ was imminent, and that since it has not yet happened, that the apostles were somehow wrong and Christianity is discredited. Foreseeing this very attitude, precipitating this very attitude, the Apostle Peter had written, this second epistle, beloved, I now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers, walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Because of the presence of the words of Paul here, where he says, all things being accomplished, we must make a long but rather necessary digression. There is another line of thinking, or non-thinking, contrary to what Peter had addressed, where people believed that Christ would never come. And this other way of thinking is often called preterism, which generally insists that because Christ had said, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 21, for these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled. And since Christ was describing the pending destruction of Jerusalem, that all things were fulfilled when Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD. That is also a very simple-minded and very mistaken viewpoint. These same people then insist that the revelation was written before 70 AD so that they could claim that it too was all fulfilled by 70 AD. But they have never provided a single exegetical commentary on either the revelation or the prophets as the proof of their theory. If you're a preterist, the burden of proof is on you that the entire revelation was fulfilled between the cross of Christ and 70 AD. I think you'll have a serious problem doing that. In fact, Christ had said that these be the days of vengeance, that all things which are written may be fulfilled, in reference to Jerusalem, because if Jerusalem was not destroyed after the Messiah was cut off, as it is written in Daniel chapter 9, then all things written would never be fulfilled. But that does not mean that there were not other things written which concerned events 
apart from the advent of the Messiah or the destruction of Jerusalem. In fact, examining all the words of the prophets, there were many things written which are still not fulfilled and other things written which certainly seem to have been fulfilled since the destruction of Jerusalem. When a man plans a 2,000-mile journey and gets halfway there, he may say, I must get on to the next stop so that I can complete my journey. Now, arriving at the next stop may not be the completion of the journey, but the journey could not be completed without arriving at the next stop. So we have the same situation with Scripture. We have seen the advent of the Messiah and the destruction of Jerusalem so that all things written in the prophets may be fulfilled. But there are other things which are written in the prophets which have obviously not yet happened, just like the rest of that trip. So these things must still await us. In fact... Paul had written to the Romans that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly. Thirteen years before Jerusalem was destroyed by the Roman legions, hundreds of thousands of Edomite Jews were destroyed and some Israelite Jews. So Paul certainly understood Daniel chapter 9. But here, he warns the Ephesians to take up the full armor, full armor of Yahweh in order that you may be able to make a stand in the evil day. Now, not for nothing, but Ephesus was well out of the scope of the battles between the Judeans and the Romans. So Paul must have been talking about some other evil day. And since the Edomite Jews were certainly not driven to extinction in 70 AD, then the words of the prophet Obadiah, for instance, could not yet be fulfilled, where it says that there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. So we still await the fulfillment of those words. And we still await the end of the enemies of Christ once and for all. Therefore, identity Christians should not be fooled by the preterists. The same Paul, who in 57 AD had told the Romans that the God of peace shall bruise Satan under your feet shortly, writes here to the Ephesians in perhaps 60 or 61 AD that for us the struggle is not against blood and flesh, but against realms, against authorities, realms, plural, authorities, plural, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places, plural, None of that can, can possibly refer to the temple in Judea. And then he says, because of this, take up the full armor of Yahweh in order that you may be able to make a stand in the evil day. 
even to stand, all things being accomplished. And with this, it is clear that Paul had foreseen a long, ongoing process where Christians must struggle against these forces of evil until the coming of some other evil day, not related to what happened in Jerusalem in 70 A.D., a day which was well beyond 70 A.D., fighting against realms, authorities, and the rulers of the order of this darkness. Yet, just like its companion heresy, futurism, preterism also makes a mockery of the language of Scripture, setting the Word of God at naught. We do not limit the interpretation of the messages to the seven churches of the Revelation to the ancient Christian assemblies of those seven cities in the first century. We believe the meanings behind the messages transcend the specific assemblies to which they were written, but we're not arguing that here. The messages were nevertheless intended for those assemblies, and an immediate interpretation must also be relevant to each of the assemblies themselves. Concerning the Ephesians, in Revelation chapter 2, we read, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. I know thy works, and thy labor, and thy patience, and thou canst not hear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not. I'm sorry, thou cannot bear them which are evil. And as thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast sound them liars, and as born, and as patience, and for my namesake has labored, and has not fainted. Nevertheless, I have something against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. Remember, therefore, from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, meaning go back to that first love, or else I will come unto thee quickly, and will remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. It was Paul of Tarsus who had first preached the Christian gospel in Ephesus. We see this in Luke's very terse language in Acts chapter 18, where speaking of Paul after his departure from Corinth, from where he had been accompanied by Aquila and Priscilla, it says, And he came to Ephesus and left them there, which probably means that he left Aquila and Priscilla in the place where they were lodging. But he himself entered into the synagogue, and reasoned with the Judeans. And when they desired him to tarry longer with them, a longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus, 
Reading the rest of that chapter of Acts, we see that after this short stay, Aquila and Priscilla had remained in Ephesus where they had met Apollos in that same synagogue and expounded unto him the way of God more perfectly because Apollos only knew the baptism of John. After some months and a trip through Judea and Antioch and Galatia and Phrygia, after some months Paul returned, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 19, and then he remained in Ephesus for three years. The message to the Ephesians in the Revelation admonishes them for having left their first love and the Christian gospel as taught to them by Paul of Tarsus must have been that first love to which the revelation is referring. However, here in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, written about 61 AD, there is no indication that Paul had known of any such problems among the assembly in Ephesus. In fact, Paul himself had warned the Ephesians of those same things for which the revelation later complimented them concerning the rejection of false apostles. In 57 AD, where he had seen them in Miletus for the last time before his arrest in Judea, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 20. But in truth, the revelation was not written before 70 AD, as the preterists insist. Rather, it was written around 96 AD, after John was released from Patmos and had returned to Ephesus, where he spent the last years of his life. During the 30 or so years between Paul's writing of this epistle and John's writing of the Revelation, the Ephesians must have suffered those things which the Revelation describes. But evidently, the candlestick was not moved from Ephesus until October 1304, when the city surrendered to the Turkish hordes. That was also in fulfillment of other prophecies, such as those found in Daniel chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 9. The preterists insist that all things written by the prophets were fulfilled in 70 AD, and their insistence makes God a liar in many ways. Instead, God is true, and let every man be a liar. What the preterists fail to understand is that Luke chapter 21 must be understood in context with the second witness to that same discourse given by Christ recorded in Matthew chapter 24. There is a third witness in Mark chapter 13. The differences in the three accounts make them all the more credible, not less credible, because it shows that at a much later time, the apostles had each independently recorded what they had remembered of the words of Christ. In Matthew chapter 24, we learn that after Christ foretold of the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the apostles had asked him three questions. Tell us. When shall these things be? 
and of what shall be the sign of thy coming, and of the end of the world? That's three separate questions. The first question was in reference to what Christ had said about the temple. The other two questions may have been related to the first in the minds of the apostles, but they were not necessarily related at all. So Christ goes into a long discourse answering all three questions, but that does not mean that all three of the events inquired of would necessarily happen at the same time. As the answers are recorded, it is also evident that Christ did not sort them out for us. In Luke chapter 21, it speaks of the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem. And this is the chapter the preterists love to refer to. And it speaks of the aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem where it says in verse 24, and they, meaning the people of Jerusalem, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the nations, or Gentiles, until the times of the nations, or Gentiles, be fulfilled. The word Gentiles in the King James Version is more properly nations, since here in this passage it is the same Greek word ethnos, which is translated in the beginning as nations shall be led away captive into all nations. It's translated here in the King James Version as both nations and as Gentiles, but it should be nations in all three places. So we see Christ himself speak of both the ongoing judgment of his enemies after 70 AD and the future fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles, or the times of the nations, following the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. So it is foolish, it is downright idiocy, to think that all prophecy was fulfilled by 70 AD, seeing that there was a time for the fulfillment of the nations after the enemies of Christ are led away captive into all nations, that those enemies still exist among those nations during that period of time. Yet other prophecies, such as Obadiah, promise the eventual and complete and utter destruction of those same enemies. And therefore, once again, all prophecy could not have been fulfilled by 70 AD. All prophecy cannot be fulfilled until the enemies of Yahweh, who were taken captive into all nations, are ultimately rooted out and destroyed. The identity Christians who have succumbed to the sophistry of the preterists are either very gullible or very much blinded by some underlying but foolish agenda So while the preterists think that the coming of the Son of Man refers to the destruction of Jerusalem under Titus, at the end of the discourse in Matthew, we see the contrary. And he says, but as it was in the days of Noah, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. 
For as in the days that were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered into the ark, and knew not until the flood came and took them all away, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Well, the flood of Noah was to to destroy the Adamic man. Paul of Tarsus said that the Roman legions would crush Satan. Then two shall be in the field, the one taken and the other left. Two women shall be grinding at the mill, the one taken and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you know not what hour your Lord does come. But know this, that if the good man of the house had known what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore, be you also ready, for in such an hour as you think not the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant, whom his Lord made ruler over his household, to give them meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he comes, shall find doing. Verily I say unto you, that he shall make him ruler over all his goods. But, and if that evil servant shall say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with the drunken, the Lord of that servant shall come in a day when he looks not for him, and in an hour that he is not aware of, and shall cut him asunder, and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Paul of Tarsus, as well as the other apostles, taught the ever-imminent return of Christ, because that was the exact teaching of Christ. Be ye also ready, for in such an hour as you think not, the Son of Man cometh. Therefore, we cannot imagine that when they saw Jerusalem encompassed with armies, as it was in 70 AD, according to that portion of the prophecy of Christ, that by itself, that was the fulfillment of all the words of the prophets. Paul did not have that understanding, and neither did the other apostles, because that is not at all what Christ had said. And we still await the fulfillment of the times of the Gentiles, along with the destruction of the enemies of our God. Many Christians miss the fact that in Scripture, there are different aspects of the judgment of the judgment of Yahweh. While there is a final and great day of judgment to look forward to, which is promised in many places in Scripture, there is also the ongoing judgment of God, which occurs on any and every day. So where Paul told the Ephesians to take up the full armor of Yahweh in order that you may be able to make a stand in the evil day, even to stand, all things being accomplished, he is really telling them two different things. First, that the Ephesians, taking up the full armor of Yahweh, may stand in the evil day, which means that they may be preserved against any danger which may come upon them, their city, or their nation at any given time. But second, that they may also stand at all, once all things are accomplished, 
meaning that they are able to stand with the children of God who are promised the ultimate salvation at that final judgment when all things are indeed accomplished. But that is not until after the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled, the times of the nations be fulfilled. Since we still have nations, just as we had nations when Christ had spoken those words, those days are not yet fulfilled. Since the enemies of our God are still among us, as they were being taken captive into those nations, by the prophecies of Jeremiah and of Christ when he spoke those words, then we still await the fulfillment of those nations. All prophecy is not fulfilled, not by 70 AD and not by 2015. Preterists are fools. Because of this ongoing process in the necessary struggle against spiritual wickedness in the heavenly places, which we see once again in all of our governments and institutions today, Paul admonishes the Ephesians to take up the full armor of Yahweh in order that you may be able to make a stand in the evil day. And he continues the analogy by stating, Ephesians 6.14, Therefore stand, girding your loins with the truth, and putting on the breastplate of justice, and binding the feet in preparation of the good message of peace, in all taking up the shield of the faith, with which you will be able to quench all the burning arrows of the wicked. The last words of, of verse 16, of the wicked, may have been rendered of the evil one. However, that phrase may be mistakenly interpreted as referring to some particular spiritual demon, where here Paul refers to any wicked individual at any given time. Paul used the same phrase in the same manner in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 where he said, For what remains, brethren, pray for us, in order that the word of the prince may move quickly and be extolled, just as even with you, and that we should be protected from those disgusting and wicked men, since the faith is not for all. And then at the end of verse 3, But trustworthy is the prince who will establish you and keep you from the wicked. So we see in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 that Paul used that term, the wicked, to collectively describe those disgusting and wicked men that he sought the protection from. So here, where he uses the same phrase, the wicked, we imagine it to, re to be used in that same manner. As for their burning arrows... We think of the spiritual wickedness in high places, which causes the just to be persecuted with lawsuits and regulations, and forcing such perversions as gay marriage and equal rights. And we see the passage in Isaiah, which we had cited earlier, where it says, and judgment is turned away backwards. 
and justice stands afar off, for truth is fallen in the street, and equity cannot enter. Yet yeah, truth faileth, and he that departs from evil makes himself a prey. And Yahweh saw it, and was dis- it displeased him that there was no judgment. This is the political climate created by the enemies of God, where those who would seek to depart from the evil become a prey for lawyers and government agencies and other vultures. Paul's allegory describing the Christian's defense continues with verse 17. And receive the helmet of deliverance and the sword of the Spirit, which is Yahweh's word, through all prayer and entreaty, worshiping at all times in the Spirit, and for this very thing, being watchful. With all persistence and entreaty on behalf of all the saints. So Paul of Tarsus takes for an analogy the same imagery which we see in chapter 5 of the Wisdom of Solomon, where it is said that the full armor of Yahweh is the starting point for the defense of the faith and the salvation of his people. And speaking of Yahweh himself, it says in, in that chapter of Solomon, he shall take to him his jealousy for a complete honor and make the creature his weapon for the revenge of his enemies, who are obviously not a part of the creature. He shall put on righteousness as a breastplate and true judgment instead of a helmet. He shall take holiness, which for true Israel is set-apartness. He shall take set-apartness for an invincible shield. His severe wrath shall he sharpen for a sword, and the world shall fight with him against the unwise. Then shall the right-aiming thunderbolts go abroad, and from the clouds, as from a well-drawn bow, shall they fly to the mark and hailstones full of wrath shall be cast out as out of a stone bow. And the water of the sea shall rage against them, and the flood shall cruelly drown them. The earth opened up and swallowed up the flood of the serpent. Yeah, a mighty wind shall stand up against them, and like a storm shall blow them away. This thus, iniquity shall lay waste the whole earth, and ill-dealing shall overthrow the thrones of the mighty. Similarly, Paul describes the full armor of Yahweh as the sure knowledge of our salvation, which is the helmet of deliverance, and the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit, with the shield of the faith, which is a belief in the promises of God, and with the breastplate of righteousness, which is a willingness to keep the laws of God, girding the loins with the truth and binding the feet for the spread of the gospel, which represents that truth. The Greeks and Romans bound their feet as they described the fastening of their sandals to their feet and the lower legs in preparation for travel. It is just as evident that Paul of Tarsus 
is using the same analogy to describe the exact same predicament that Solomon was describing. Here Solomon said that the creation, meaning the Adamic man, would be Yahweh's weapon for revenge against his enemies. Paul had said much the same thing in his second epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 10 where he had told them to be in readiness to revenge all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Solomon informs us that the wrath of Yahweh unleashes his fury through his people against the thrones of the mighty, just as Paul tells us here that the struggle for us is against realms, against authorities, against the rulers of the order of this darkness, against the spiritual things of wickedness among the heavenly places. They are the realms of the kings. The message is the same with Solomon as it is with Paul, and there is nothing new under the sun. When the people of Yahweh choose obedience to his law, then Yahweh will employ his people in the destruction of his enemies and theirs. Only then shall all things written truly be fulfilled. So in reality, adorning the full armor of Yahweh prepares Christians in obedience so that Yahweh God may use his people to destroy his enemies and also to defend themselves against his enemies until the day of their destruction comes. This is not merely to convert those enemies, but to destroy them. As it says in Obadiah from verse 15, For the day of Yahweh is near upon all the heathen, as thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. That word heathen also means nations. Here's the fulfillment of the nations. Here's the fulfillment of the nations Christ spoke of. For as you have drunk upon my holy mountain, so then shall all the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they shall drink and they shall swallow down. and they shall be as though they had not been. That's the fulfillment of the nations. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau the Jews, for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for Yahweh has spoken it. In Obadiah, as well as elsewhere, we see the end of the heathen, the fulfillment of the nations, as well as the end of the Edomite Jew. For this reason we read in Micah chapter 4, Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make thine Horn, iron, and I will make thy hooves brass, and thou shalt beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain unto Yahweh, and their substance unto the Lord of the whole earth. For the same reason we read in Revelation chapter 18, which is not yet fulfilled, 
I would like to see where the people of God came out of mystery Babylon in 70 AD. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues, for her sins have reached unto heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Reward her, even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to all her works. In the cup which she has filled, fill to her double. Once again, only then shall all things written truly be fulfilled. Paul continues by asking the Ephesians that they pray for him as well. Verse 19. And on my behalf, in order that speech may be given to me in the opening of my mouth with free spokenness or with liberty of speech, to make known the mystery of the good message for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in them, I may speak freely as it is necessary for me to speak. And in verse 20, it literally reads, for which I am an ambassador in a chain, that in it I may speak. And we took a liberty in accordance with our own idiom and used the plural. Even when we are persuaded that we know all that we need to know, we are not always able to say the things that we would like to at the time which we think is most opportune. That may be because while we wish to speak, it is simply not time for those listening to actually hear. So Paul of Tarsus, with all of his knowledge and experience, after 30 years of preaching the gospel, nearly 28 at least, Paul still prays and asks for prayer that he may be able to say the things which he esteems to be necessary in defense of the faith. And that is also a reflection of his great humility. As we have previously explained, Paul is under arrest in Rome and is about to be brought before the Emperor Nero for a defense of the faith. Perhaps by petitioning this prayer immediately following his summons to put on the full armor of Yahweh, Paul reveals that he also had himself in mind because he had not yet defended himself before Caesar and would certainly need to withstand the fiery darts of the wicked when he did. And Paul continues, Now in order that you may also know of the things concerning me, what I am doing, Tuchicus, the beloved brother and faithful servant and a prince, will make all things known to you. Of course, all things means all things in reference to Paul. Whom I have sent to you for this very thing, in order that you would know the things concerning us, and that would encourage your hearts. Here it is evident that Tychicus delivered this epistle, and Tychicus was mentioned as having been sent to Ephesus by Paul in 2 Timothy 4.12, which was a letter which was also written during Paul's captivity in Rome. 
When we began this series on Ephesians, we related the doubt of the, the academic scholars that this letter was actually written to the Ephesians. Since the earliest manuscripts want the word Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1, and that is true. However, since in 2 Timothy, shortly after this letter was written, Paul explicitly mentions having sent Tychicus to Ephesus. And since he is mentioned here as having been sent to the recipients of this letter by Paul, it is wholly evident that this letter was indeed originally meant for the Ephesians. Furthermore, it is evident that Tychicus himself was an Ephesian, as in Acts chapter 20, Luke informs us that Tychicus and Trophimus are of Asia, and at the time, Ephesus was the capital city of Roman Asia. As we have explained in an article entitled, Ordering and Chronology of the Epistles of Paul, an article which has only recently been published at Christogenia. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians was written from Rome. And this is evident in 2 Timothy 4.12, where Paul explained that he had sent Tychicus to Ephesus, and we see that Paul is a prisoner when he wrote Ephesians, from Ephesians chapter 3. So here in Ephesians 6.21, we see that Tychicus must have brought this letter to Ephesus before Paul wrote his second epistle to Timothy. As we see in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, where he had mentioned that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Perhaps the full armor of Yahweh prayer at the end of the epistle reveals that Paul had not yet defended himself before Caesar something that there was no mention of in the epistle, but that he was about to do so, which he mentions later in 2 Timothy. The second epistle to Timothy was also written from Rome, after Paul had already offered his defense of Christianity, which he mentioned in 2 Timothy chapter 4. So this first defense must have happened after Paul wrote this epistle to the Ephesians. And then, not long after that, Paul wrote to Timothy. This agrees with his statement that he sent Tychicus to Ephesus, ostensibly with this very epistle to the Ephesians in hand. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verses 9 11 and 13, Paul had mentioned his defense in Rome in verse 16, Paul asks Timothy to come to Rome and to bring Mark with him. In the other three surviving epistles which Paul later wrote from Rome, wherein each one Timothy is with him, it is evident that Timothy did indeed comply and came to Rome to see Paul. Those final three epistles are Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon.
either while or perhaps before Timothy had arrived to be with Paul in Rome, Tychicus returned from Ephesus, and Paul in turn sent Tychicus off once again to go to the Colossians with that epistle. So we see Tychicus brings this epistle to the Ephesians. Paul has his first defense of the faith in Rome. Paul writes to Timothy, telling Timothy he sent Tychicus to Ephesus. Paul asks Timothy in that letter to come to him at Rome. After that time, Tychicus and Timothy both arrive in Rome to be with Paul. Then Paul writes, along with Timothy, those last three epistles, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, and sends Tychicus off to Colossae with the epistle to the Colossians. That's the chronology. Paul then concludes his epistle with a salutation. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from Father Yahweh, even Prince Yahshua Christ, favor is with all those loving our Prince, Yahshua Christ, with incorruption, meaning with sincerity. With this, we conclude our presentation of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. We cannot imagine having anything more to say, except to pray that we said enough to help our readers and listeners understand this epistle in its proper historical and biblical perspective. And we pray also that among identity Christians, preterism is dead. But if not, we will continue in that battle as well. Preterism has no business in Christian identity. Praise Yahweh. Thank you for listening. And good night.